everyone. Welcome to Tech Policy Grind, a show by and about young professionals in the tech law and policy space. Today, we're joined by Bijan Madhani, fellow foundry member at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, senior policy counsel at CCIA, the Computer and Communications Industry Association, to talk about the general data protection regulations, the new set of sweeping and far-reaching privacy regulations coming online in Europe this week on May 25th. The Europeans are coming. Should small businesses be concerned? Is the GDPR really Thanos? And if so, does that make the right to be forgotten the time stoned? We cover these crucial issues and more right here on Tech Policy Grind. So sit back and enjoy our discussion with Bijan Matani. Stay tuned next week for our special bonus coverage from our week at RightsCon, and we will talk to you next week. All right, Bijan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. We really like to kick off the show by asking folks, what are you grinding for? Um, you know, apart from my morning frappuccino, uh, <laughs> I, I think it is, you know, cashing checks, but also information policy uh, writ large, sort of how how the world's information is organized, how, how we handle that information, and uh, who gets to see it is sort of what I live for thinking about on a daily basis. Um, fortunately, I get paid to do that. So, um, you know, it's, it's not a bad gig what I do at CCIA. Um, I guess I should dive in a little bit to that. Which is, yeah, well, you're you're very young. You're senior policy counsel at CCIA. That's I <laughs> the mean, titles impressive. are so flexible um, in the tech industry. I I could have been you know <laughs> uh, head evangelist for uh, you know information privacy and no one would have blinked an eye. So that's a good title too. Do you want to give a little yeah. bit of background to our listeners about CCIA? It's uh, one of the older advocacy orgs in the country, and I know that uh, well, again, you're senior policy counsel. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on that? Sure. So uh, CCI is a trade association like many others in D.C. Um, we represent large and medium-sized Internet companies and a few um, uh, satellite providers and telcos, uh, mobile telcos as well. Um, and we have sort of an interesting history among the trade associations in that we uh, were formed by sort of competitive Internet and or competitive technology and uh, communications companies who are always challenging sort of incumbents in the space, um, usually through antitrust challenges. Uh, and so that's sort of been the general vein with which we operate in, in, in DC, which is to always ensure that, um, you know, even though we have larger companies, smaller voices, the voices of their users um, are always reflected in the policy positions we try to take. Um, and so I think it lends us a little bit more flexibility as an association than others. Um, and I think it lends us uh, the ability to sort of think about issues more from a user rights perspective. Um, and, and, you know, that can be challenging at times, but it also is a, uh, it, it, I think it, it keeps us closer to sort of a nimble advocacy organization than it would sort of a, a rigid um, committee-based trade association. So, um, and, Go ahead. No, how, how, so how did you learn all of this stuff? I think we first crossed paths, and I think you do a lot of surveillance-style work. Mm -hmm. um, we're here today, obviously, to talk about the, the GDPR, which is a whole other realm of, of stuff. Um, how do you, I mean, aside from sort of gathering information from all of your members, how do you pick up and learn all these really complicated tech policy landscapes? I mean, Twitter is a good place to start. Um, <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> Everyone there has uh, at least three threads breaking something down uh, that I can, you know, turn to. Uh, I love that you mentioned fly. Twitter because I don't think we've had a single show go by where we haven't mentioned Twitter. So, exactly. can to keep on that um, Twitter train? <laughs> it's it's just a good way to keep track of like you know developments 
as as they happen. Um, you know, I I also think that my job affords me some flexibility, and so. Um, there, there are some days where, you know, Congress is not in session and I don't have to be lobbying. I can just spend an entire day re like deep diving and reading about things that I otherwise wouldn't have time to do in another role at say a law firm or something like that. Well, I'd love so, to get a little more into your actual role. Um, I guess I, I'm yeah. sure that plenty of our listeners don't even know what a policy council is, but I, I you know, you're a the senior, senior policy council. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're a senior policy council. There are people who are junior to me, but I don't really supervise them. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's sort of like a hybrid lawyer lobbyist role. Um, we take we take and synthesize a bunch of input from our member companies on a whole host of issues. So my portfolio generally is you know, commercial privacy issues, including GDPR, privacy shield, cross border data flows, um, and then a whole set the separate bucket of uh, you know, law enforcement and, and national security related privacy issues, so surveillance and intelligence access to data. Um, and we, we respond to events, you know, sort of on the fly, uh, you know, uh, taking, taking on member feedback about them and then sort of synthesizing it, uh, adding a sort of user rights uh, bit of flavor to that, and then um, taking it to, you know, regulatory agencies, um, Congress uh, and the courts, depending on on where the action is, uh, and and make sure that our members' views are heard, and so that can mean amicus briefs, you know, before the district court in the San Bernardino encryption case. It can mean uh, you know somewhat tedious FTC filings and you know the Nomi case, uh, and or it can mean uh, you know doing hill briefings or uh, taking meetings on the hill with, with staffers who are really interested in the subject matter and, you know, have bosses that want to regulate, but aren't quite sure what uh, that regulation would mean. Uh, and so, uh, so it's, you're, it's, so it's you're, fun. Yeah. You're but, saying that your, your job is basically the hybrid of what everyone hates about DC lawyers and oh, lobbyists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Living I the dream. Am. There's going to be a comic about me. I mean, it's already out. It's called Swamp Thing. So. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get uh, really like dive deeper into your roles and into GDPR and stuff, just give us a real quick and dirty on, on your background and how you got interested in what you're doing now and kind of a little bit about where you grew up and where you went to school. Sure. Um, so I am actually a bit of an oil brat. Uh, so I grew up um, in, the, in L.A., then Houston, and then the Middle East, uh, where, I, where I did high school. Um, and so I, I have, uh, you know, the internet was my way of sort of connecting with everybody back home, but also mm -hmm. sort of with building a community when I lived abroad. Um, and then I went to college in Berkeley and go bears. was sort of go bears. Exactly. <laughs> um, we can do the whole like drinking song if you want. I know it. <laughs> um, you guys should do both do it in sync right now, immediately. Oh, I will absolutely keep it in. I swear to God, if you start it, just go. What are you talking about? I don't drink. I never partied in college. <laughs> There's no evidence on that's, Facebook that's... to suggest otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's my story. I am sticking to it. Uh, and so in, in college, you know, I, I jumped around a bunch of different majors, but, um, you know, at the time, like, a lot of the more... Uh, popular internet communities were really just getting finding their footing, and so I it was a it was a nice time at Berkeley to sort of um, engage with a whole lot of nerds who eventually went on to 
you know, help develop these platforms. And so, and, and, not, and not even just the platforms themselves, but sort of the communities behind the platforms. And so this was like the, before Reddit, there was Dig. And, you know, I was pretty involved in, in Dig and, and uh, as a user or on the other side of things? As a user and a little bit on the moderation side, and it was just sort of a nice way. It was a nice entree into the you know modern, terrible place that you know Reddit and 4chan are. Uh, but it was it was a it was it was it was nicer days. And so I don't know. I was just sort of always involved in like internet sort of community things, but I didn't have like an idea that I wanted to eventually become like an internet lawyer. Um, I always thought that I was going to end up doing sort of international law related issues because you know I had. Lived Didn't in the Middle we East, all? and so surely, exactly. <laughs> then I got to law school, and it turns out international law has like three jobs. Right. And, exactly. Um, you're like describing my entire you're describing yeah. my yep. school experience. <laughs> exactly, and and one of them happens to be taken by like like the best human rights lawyer, Mal Clooney, and so like you know, there's only two left, and I, I didn't feel like you know competing in that market, I guess. But it was also uh, a really good time um, to sort of be thinking about. Uh, internet policy because it was just before the Snowden leaks and it was um, I, I, honestly it was just like fortuitous timing and my law school had a really good program for sort of IP policy which they turned and they, they run the Creative Commons USA program um, which they then turned into sort of an internet policy apparatus and so like I, I was like that sounds great um, I hear the internet's gonna be around for a while maybe I should you know <laughs> um, be a lawyer for that uh and so i focused at first a little bit more on copyright issues um and then i ended up working for uh, senator feinstein for a little while where we worked on uh, uh ECPA reform and fisa um the last time around uh ECPA reform eh yeah exactly my <laughs> life is really cyclical in that uh i have been doing the same thing over every, every five years so iterating same, you're iterating exactly <laughs> Yeah, or, or stagnating. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but but it was like so I, I be, you know became fairly well versed in FISA and in uh, the warrant for content conversation, um, and then CCI, my current organization, hired me on as a fellow to work on uh, a copyright Supreme Court brief, Aereo, which uh, you know did not go so well for Aereo, but the timing was perfect in that. The Snowden leaks happened the, when I was working at uh, CCI, and uh, my predecessor, uh, Ross Schulman, who's actually at New America Foundation, OT, uh, Open Technology Institute now, um, was like, hey, we need all hands on deck. You seem to know things about FISA. You know, uh, join the party. And so it was a lot of parsing what people were saying about PRISM, a lot of the um, good and bad reporting that was coming out around the Snowden leaks. Uh, and then, you know, helping our companies navigate that space, uh, prepping our CEO for testimony, um, and then Ross, uh, went off to bigger and better things at a member company, uh, as, as it happens sometimes. And, uh, CCI invited me to, to stay on forever, which I mean, probably has something to do with the fact that I was fairly affordable at the time, but, uh, also, um, you know, was exactly what I wanted to be doing, uh, working, working on these issues. I wasn't sure where I wanted to be working on these issues um but i want i knew i wanted it to be more from a user rights perspective than than a pure industry one and since cci had that reputation i was like well yeah, i better jump on this opportunity and so that's what i've been doing since um and 
it has really never slowed down. I think, you know, post-Snowden, the, the conversation has generally always been about surveillance and less about sort of commercial privacy issues. But, um, you know, I think obviously in the last few months we've seen uh, a shift. And so I have reacquainted myself um, with a lot of the, the principles that I, I learned in my third year information privacy law class. Um, and, 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 you know, I don't know that I would ever call myself an expert in anything, but, um, no, no one should ever say they're an expert yeah. on European law or the intelligence no, community. Exactly. Yeah. Still though, for all of our listeners out there, um, Berkeley graduate, uh, senior policy counsel in his twenties and still has imposter syndrome. So I think it's just all of us, all, all of us have it. It's okay. <laughs> Everything's going to be yeah. all right. Just keep, keep trucking. <laughs> So I, I can't stress enough to my co-hosts and listeners how weirdly excited I am to talk about the general data protection regulation. Oh, we know, Joe. It, we know. In my mind, it's like if anybody's seen Avengers, it's like Thanos. He's like been it's been coming for a long, long time. <laughs> You're totally like right. And hey, spoiler alerts: we're <laughs> not going to spoil Infinity War for anybody on this. Oh. I, I want to talk about GDPR, but I actually want to. I, I'm just curious. So. What, you also mentioned you've done a lot of work on Privacy Shield, and I assume the, the predecessor to that, which was the Safe Harbor Agreement. Mm -hmm. A lot of that, I think, the discussion there has been informed by surveillance issues. I mean, mm -hmm. the reason the Safe Harbor was struck down was because we have bulk surveillance in the United States. I guess I'm just curious if, if that has been a, a bridge for you in trying to sort of blend all of these worlds together, or... If no, that's, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, it, it's... I, I privacy shield sort of collapsed within my first year on the job. And I had really only been focusing on that, you know, 2014, 15 period on, um, you know, surveillance issues around page, uh, section 215 of the Patriot act. Um, because that's what our member companies needed at the time. Um, but it was a really good entree into sort of this world of how does European privacy work compared to the U S um, do you understand how European privacy works? No, I don't, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to pretend for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, and it it was a it was a nice way to sort of like dip my toes in the water because I I could start with like the private like the the safe harbor privacy principles and you know the shift from those principles and thinking about the recommendations that were being made and what my companies were doing with information. Um, and then sort of developing the new set of privacy shield principles. Um, and, and then, you know, watching our company sort of implement those was a really nice sort of segue into watching our company struggle to implement a lot of the requirements of GDPR. Um, many of which, you know, to be fair, did exist in European law, just without any real bite behind them. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, an, it was actually a very convenient sort of slide into doing, sort of more traditional privacy data protection uh, issues because Privacy Shield sort of melded both of those. That's a good, yeah, that was a good catch. That's exactly how I view my career. Thank you. Well, so, well, so, all right, like, can I, I guess we could get started. Yeah. What is this general data protection regulation? And you've done work on Privacy Shield. So if you're a company and you're part of the Privacy Shield program, how is that different from, I think, what privacy advocates are suddenly calling for, which is for everybody to just go whole hog on doing everything the GDPR requires? And I realize that's an incredibly loaded question. Yes. <laughs> so I, I think we'll just start with the, the basics. What, it, what is GDPR? So the General Data Protection Regulation um, is, is uh, the new, well, not new anymore. It's, it's been completed for uh, about 18 months, but it's going to be effective May 25th of this year. 
um, and it's set to replace the existing data protection directive uh, in the EU, which is from 1995, uh, and essentially is designed to um, sort of elevate and harmonize the uh, way that um, companies and individuals and users think about data uh, and its use in uh, as long as, as it pertains to European data subjects. Um, it includes a host of uh, different rights, which you know are largely already um, extant in European law, but uh, they now have a whole host of additional sort of um, a, a bit more, I guess, stick behind them uh, in terms of sort of uh, the enforcement uh, mechanisms. But you know, they include ideas, new ideas, or new and evolving ideas around data subject consent, how data anonymization works. Uh, breach notification for privacy harms, um, you know, sing single data protection officers for companies, um, and it's just a whole host, a whole hog sort of rethinking of how, um, you know, companies, not just internet companies, but all companies, that's the general part, um, ought to be thinking about how uh, they are controlling and processing data. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's fair to say that it's probably the most impactful or, or you know, privacy regulation, there is, uh, I mean, obviously the U.S. doesn't have a whole lot that compares to it. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's big and it's coming and it's like Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> There's an analogy for the articles in the soul stones, but I'm, I'm still grasping at it. I'll try to work it in by the end of the show. Oh, I, I can see that somewhere, you know, right, right to, um, explanation is like the, I don't know, maybe, the reality stone, or something yeah. Like that. And, and yeah, what's exactly. the what's the right to be forgotten? Uh, a right to oh, time right stone, to, maybe. Oh, time stone. Taking Definitely. us back to episode yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that it, it is the time stone. Then I want to know, like, and as someone who's kind of trying to still get into this field and learn, still learning a lot, like from the you know, you said you you read a lot of sources on Twitter and stuff, and you know, and you just see all these all these you know on social media and on in different areas you see all these like gdpr is coming are you ready like what you know i just want to know like what are the tech companies going through right now and like are they freaking out are they right to freak out like what's going to happen so i i don't I, I think there are companies that are freaking out i don't think that they're generally the tech companies you would think of because most of the existing like the the larger social media platforms and and email providers and consumer-facing entities uh, have long, uh, you know, because they have European audiences, have long had to comply with safe harbor and privacy shield principles, um, have had to be compliant with the directive uh, since '95, and even before that, you know, had to think because many of them are subject to FTC consent decrees about having privacy programs in place um, that sort of and, and integrating privacy into their design process. Um, I think the people who are really surprised are the folks who, you know, handle data, but don't realize they're handling data. Like they don't think of themselves as data companies, right? Like you're, uh, if you're a pizza delivery shop, you take personal data in because you need to know where uh, to send that pizza. You know, you have to think about, uh, you know, am I, I'm a controller now. Okay. Um, so the, I, the one thing I will say that, that is somewhat positive in my experience about the general data protection regulation is that it's general. And this is sort of like when, you know, you're asked to compliment somebody and you say, well, he's tall. Like I was going to say the <laughs> one thing. <laughs> yeah. It's that like there, there is no like picking winners and losers 
where you know we're going to regulate the the ISPs and the internet companies, but not the data brokers. It's everybody who handles data uh, has to be thoughtful about it. That's a good thing. Um, and and you know our companies have used it, I think, as an opportunity to to sort of re sort of reassess and reinvest in their privacy programs. Um, you know they've made you know I can talk a little bit about how you know like what we've been hearing from our, our companies, um, you know, beyond the, you guys all got that slew of privacy policy update notifications. Oh, every day uh, I've been keeping exactly. tally. But no, and you should feel free to share yeah. inside knowledge with us. Well, it's not inside knowledge. I'm not going to talk, talk about any specific member company, um, but I can tell you sort of like... What <laughs> Anonymize, pseudonymize. Exactly. <laughs> I can talk about what the common common threads are that they, they have sort of shared with us. Um, and a lot of it really is um, sort of, redoing how privacy programs not redoing but sort of um rethinking about what they do with data and why they're doing it um they ask a lot of questions of themselves now that i think maybe they weren't you know always asking before um you know they they, they start with their sort of existing systems and services they're like what, what are our current uses and need, needs for data um you know in industry parlance they're just doing data mapping but you know these data maps are enormous now um, and, and it's sort of like, you know, looking at their relational databases and their, and, and, and I'm not a, you know, engineer, so I, I, I probably got that term wrong, but basically looking at all of their data sets and saying, how do we get this data or personal information? Why do we have it? Um, for what purpose do we have it? Um, do we still need it for that purpose? Uh, how's it stored? Um, you know, to the extent we still need it, um, why do we still need it? Uh, can we articulate that in a clear way to our users? Um, does the data get processed, which is sort of like, you know, is, is an operation happening on that data, some sort of technical or algorithmic operation? Um, it, why is it getting processed? Do we have a legitimate reason for doing that? Um, can we articulate that to our users? Um, does the data move? Does it get transferred? Um, what are the requirements? Um, or, you know, what have we been doing when the data gets, you know, is at rest or, or is in transit? But what sort of protections are we affording that data? Um, and then they sort of, once they have this map in the, in the set of characteristics for the, the data that they currently hold, um, then they evaluate sort of the existing controls and services that they uh, have for their users. Um, you know, what notifications has, are they currently providing? What sort of, you know, opt-ins or opt-outs or, you know, dashboards are there? Um, you know, and then they have to compare. And now they have, I mean, like a lot of this for larger member companies, uh, can be done in, to a certain extent in-house. They have a whole, you know, raft of privacy professionals. So um, let me ask, yeah, how, so, and this is, gets to my follow-up question of, of what you think is unfair with the GDPR, but how easy is it to do all of this? This, to my mind, sounds like you're sort of describing responsible data governance, but yeah. there also is a lot of stuff in there. Um, exactly. And, and also I mean, what happens, sorry, what happens to if, like you said, these companies who are not aware or don't think of themselves as tech companies or, or companies that collect data, what happens to them if they they find you know they end up being non-compliant? Mm -hmm. So on the on the first side, you know, I guess sort of I think you asked sort of about you know fairness or it's, for some companies it's not a huge burden. They have these programs and responsible data practices in place. There's some tweaking that has to happen to ensure that they can now afford the right to access or the uh, appropriate you know main, means of portability for that data. But generally speaking, like, you know, there's a certain class of companies that, that this is not like the end of the world for. I mean, it's expensive for them because they have to still hire outside counsel to ensure that they're doing their due diligence. And uh, but in the end, like that's sort of a pittance. It's the, it's the folks who don't have these 
you know, who are, who are smaller companies who don't have, who have either not really been thinking about themselves as sort of data controllers or processors, um, or the companies that, um, who, who know that they have data and use it, but don't really have, you know, like existing legal teams and privacy teams ready to, to adapt everything their engineers are doing because they're all sort of being built on the fly. Um, those are the folks for whom I think, you know, one has a percentage of, of, of revenue they're now having to put a little bit more into this sort of, you know, legal and compliance function than they would normally, they probably wouldn't have as sort of maybe earlier stage startups or mid-sized, you know, not mid-sized tech companies, but, you know, um, folks without these sort of like general counsel shops and, and well, I guess, uh, I mean, on, on the one hand, it feels a lot from the privacy advocate side that we're taking something that was always privacy was always put all the way to the end and almost as an afterthought all too frequently. And now it is again, how Joe was describing it, you know, responsible data usage. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's fair. Um, you know, the, every company sort of has to have its like reckoning with how they are handling uh, personal data. And um, that's it's better point. to have it proactively. That. <laughs> I am clipping that for the show. Every company has to have their reckoning. Yes, exactly. I mean, and, and I, I, this reckoning happens to be um, from Europe. I mean, like it, 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 it's, <laughs> uh, it just, it's just, it, it's better. I think, I think, you know, I, our companies are, are dealing with GDPR. I think they, in some ways also recognize that like better to be proactive and, and, you know, implement responsible data pra practices to the extent they haven't before things go sideways. Um, before so it sounds like is... you're saying GDPR is the standard. I don't know that it's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's causing them to rethink how they're, you know, dealing with data, but I don't know that it's necessarily the standard for everywhere and everything. Every company is mm -hmm. approaching that, you know, their own way. Some companies have committed to doing that, you know, well, since we're doing GDPR um, for European users, uh, we may as well just implement it across the board. Um, for some, it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, and for a lot of smaller companies, um, they're trying to, it's time to sort of make hard decisions. Like, um, I, again, I go to Twitter for, for, for some takes. And, uh, I think last week at one point there was, uh, there were a few tweets about a company called GDPR shield. Yeah. I was going to um, bring that up. And all it does is if you are a small web user or an app developer or something like that, it essentially just blocks all European IPs from accessing your website. Um, and, you know, that's that seems unfair, right? But, like, think about it from the smaller company's perspective. I have, like, three engineers and, um, and you know, an outside lawyer who I sometimes call to deal with some of my contracts. Uh, I, d I don't have the, like, bandwidth to prepare right. for GDPR. Um, I, I'm still trying to build a user base in the United States. I'll just cut off European users for the time being until I'm a big enough company to deal with that burden. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that might mean that, you know, European users miss out on some newer services for a little while. I, I mean, like, but yeah, a lot of these companies are going to make tough decisions about where they expand to, where their next markets are. And, um, you know, it turns out that, you know, onerous privacy regulation can be uh, a factor in that. Um, we actually hmm. uh, did a study on um, 
the time from when I think the e-privacy directive was implemented and uh, not e-privacy directive, uh, the original privacy directive and then uh, the e-privacy directive from 2003 and sort of looked at uh, relative levels of VC investment in, in Europe compared to the US and a couple of other baseline states. Um, and obviously it's not perfect because there are different tax structures and, and investment guidelines, but uh, there is there is a statistically significant uh, decrease in VC investment in Europe over the uh, period following the implementation of the directive. Um, so, it, so the GDPR literally does kill innovation. Ah. Well, it, 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 so <laughs> not, not necessarily. It's you know, it, this is a CI CCIA's official effect. position. <laughs> uh, this is just an inference drawn from you know economic data. I, 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 we would I'm, never suggest causation we know better than do that uh, <laughs> i i am interested in your personal opinion though i mean i feel like mm -hmm. i i can almost buy the argument i i think that from my side again from the privacy advocate side i think it, it feels like the complaints to come into compliance are m maybe exaggerated but i can at least buy that argument mm -hmm. what i find less convincing is the idea that this is going to present a serious barrier to new small businesses I can understand if you're a business that has been operating this way and you've got your budget and then suddenly a new regulation comes down, it can sure. be a huge problem. But, you know, if you're, you know, college kid today that you want to start a business tomorrow and now the GDPR, or, I'm sorry, a year from now and GDPR is the law of the land in Europe. I mean, it, it seems like that would just be sort of responsible data. Yeah, use. something you have to deal with. Sure. Um, and it also could lead to... I mean, I, I don't want to, like, there could be some innovation in a different sense, which is that maybe um, some of these newer companies will think about different revenue models. I don't know mm -hmm. what they are. No one actually. Has or different markets. Like, exactly. Maybe not just Europe, maybe Asia, maybe Africa. I mean. Yeah, they may, they may want to choose, hey, well, actually, this market seems to have, you know, less, less stringent data security or data protection requirements. Maybe I'll just launch there instead. Um, but there's also the other option, which is, hey, no, I do want to serve a European audience. Um, I can't exactly do the same level of monetization based on, on um, you know, you know, delivering targeted ads or something. Yeah. Like that. So Maybe I, let's um... <laughs> let's point on that because I liked I, I, talking about Twitter hot takes. You know, I think that one of the takes that was circulating last week, I think it might have been Whitney Merrill who had said that, uh, or Matthew Green, I, I don't know, but someone had said that um, if you know, for the all these companies that are saying that they're shuttering because of the GDPR. Well, that's really just a, a hint to your users that they're selling your data. What is your take on that? Is that does that feel like I an mean, honest or a fair take? I mean, it's not an I, I, no takes. Well, some takes are unfair. There are no bad takes. Um, <laughs> wow, clip that. There are no bad say, takes. I am going to yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, at least about GDPR, but uh, <laughs> right. At least about GDPR. <laughs> you know, I I, I I think users have been told that in the, I mean, kind of, I don't know, to a certain extent, right? Like, um, you assume the risk, I guess, of, of mm -hmm. All right. you know, <laughs> standing up for a platform. But uh, no, I, I, I think that's not, a, I think that's fair. Um, and, you know, maybe that, that will precipitate new business models. I know our companies are not solely dedicated to the idea of using targeted ads. Um, they they are trying to innovate around their business models as well. Um, they it, we just need to figure out one uh, one or many that sort of stick as alternatives, and then you know then you'll maybe see some additional innovation on 
you know, how privacy protection works as a, as a selling point used as well. It, that hasn't worked yet, right? Like we've seen a whole bunch of these ephemeral social networks that, I mean, they're ephemeral in two senses. One, that your data is ephemeral with them. And two, they're ephemeral in that they disappear within months right. because, <laughs> because they can't, you know, make any money or generate uh, any traction with users. Speaking as someone who works as a privacy advocate and also I think we're coming at this in the, the wake of Cambridge Analytica mm -hmm. and the Facebook controversy. Um, I, I do I, think I actually hadn't heard about that. Could you? Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah let's, let's give everybody an overview of what happened. Um, well, so, you know, what I think is really in A, I, I still want to ask you what your favorite article in the GDPR is because I feel like that needs to be like a test for folks mm -hmm. anymore. But I think what's really fascinating about the GDPR is it's driving U.S. conversations in a way that I hadn't anticipated. I mean, obviously, companies are thinking about it. But, you know, con con congressmen are like, there's mm -hmm. this European thing. And even the press seems to have finally like clued on that privacy matters in Europe. And so what, what does that mean over here? Um, so as someone who is, you know, a lobbyist in the swamp, um, mm -hmm. what's your take on, on privacy legislation in the United States and how the GDPR is informing that? You know, I think it, up until this point, it hasn't really. There, there's a lot of... There are a lot of staffers now sort of asking, like, what is GDPR? Um, and I'm, I'm happy to provide them with uh, information <laughs> about that. Uh, I'm biased and uh, unfiltered. Uh, and, but but I, I do think that the terms in GDPR are sort of, like, filtering. Their, they're like, oh, data portability, what does that mean? Um, what it, Like, you know, could we think about that? In, in, in what does that mean? Well, I mean, it could mean a lot of things. It, it's different than data access. It means being able to take your... And again, ownership of data is still sort of fraught, but it is uh, it, taking data that you have provided to a service um, with you to another service in a way that is, I, in, in my, this is now personal and not like professional, like it ought to be sort of machine readable and accessible to that secondary or third service um, so that you can sort of move between, you know, a lot of companies always like to say on the internet competition to the click away and this sort of the idea is to sort of enable that competition being a click away. Um, how it's done and how it's mandated um, are all sort of nuances that, you know, European regulators are still thinking about. Uh, and certainly that, you know, American uh, Hill staffers have very, very recently started to noodle about. Um, but it is, you know, it's part of this conversation. Like, so these are the ideas that are like, people are still are now asking like, okay, does GDPR include right to be forgotten? That's sort of like, can we, would we be able to implement that in the United States? And I'm like, well, hell no. Um, you know. <laughs> All right, we, we can get rid of that article. Don't yeah. have to worry about yeah, that exactly. one. But, but there, there are ideas around sort of how do you import some of the, the not, maybe not the exact protections, but sort of the, the principles like, hey, user, you, know, you need to have a user-centric model of thinking about how you're handling data as a company. Um, you know, I don't know if we can, if, if there's any way to write legislation that mandates that, but um, it's starting to sort of inform how legislative principles or, or, and staffers are thinking about it. Um, so two weeks ago, I was all over the hill um, talking to, because there was just a flurry of uh, following um, some testimony from, from Facebook, a flurry of uh, legislation sort of coming out, um, consent act, um, Another bill with less a less interesting acronym from uh, Senators uh, Klobuchar and uh, Kennedy. It's bipartisan. Kennedy, that's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> bipartisan. Um, and in a cup in, in the Browser Act from last year, you know, 
zombified a little bit uh, because Marshall Blackburn um, is running for re-election and uh, or running for a Senate seat. Um, but you know, all these bills sort of came up, and uh, they were they were all thinking about data in the same sort of like or not data, but about how to regulate in the same sort of well. These companies have relationships with users, and so we ought to regulate them for their relationship with users. That, I mean, that's in, initially intuitive, like, right? I, I sign up for a website. I have they have a privacy policy. I, you know, agree to their terms. So we that's the hook for you know how we can regulate in privacy here. Um, one thing that GDPR does, I don't know if this is the right way to do it, um, but it, 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 again, it's general, right? So like it, it, it catches all those companies that are doing things with data. That don't necessarily have a relationship with the user, and who, in in many senses, may be bad actors, um, or or just the invisible actors, and so we don't know exactly what they're doing, or users don't know exactly what they're doing, but they just know that maybe it makes them feel icky, right? So there are some good things about GDPR, which is that it doesn't pick winners and losers, and that is one thing that we've been trying to uh, articulate, I think, a little bit on the hill, which is that. Um, you don't want to be doing writing knee-jerk knee uh, uh, bills that really only have this sort of myopic view of how data is act is collected and used online. Um, really, the the sort of direct user to business relationship is really a small sliver of how that happens, uh, and you want to be um, thoughtful about capturing everybody in the ecosystem. Um, so that, you know, because a lot of the companies also have like a whole host of different, like some of them are user, uh, business to business. Some of them are, um, user to user. Some of them do all of the above. And so they don't, you don't, you know, you don't want to just regulate a particular part of a company. You want to, you know, make them be thoughtful about these issues, um, as, as a whole entity. And I think the companies would prefer that too, because they don't want to have to like answer 15 different, uh, or, or like, you know, set up 15 different systems for, you know, their different business entity or business business services or user services. Um, and so that's that's one aspect of the conversation that GDPR has sort of started to shift, I hope, um, to a more sort of comprehensive look about the ecosystem. Whether the solutions from GDPR are the ones you need to implement, that's a separate conversation. That's like, like a sec the next step of the conversation. Um, and I, you know, I think you can guess where my position is on that. But <laughs> um, I think on the front end, it is a good conversation to have. So yeah, GDPR is influencing what's going on on the Hill. The can, Europeans can I... are coming. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I've, I'm always struggling with as someone who's interested in privacy is, is the notion that a lot of this is underlined, and the GDPR does this too, with notions of consent, mm -hmm. which devolves into notice and choice, which I, I don't think works. Um, I guess I, I, you know, as an advocate, I wish we could come up with hard and fast oh, yeah, right line rules. Do you have a solution to that? Because uh... Uh, well. My solution, and I love your reaction to this, and I don't, again, not tell sure how you legislate this, and this tends to be the thing that I think privacy folks uh, see as a slippery slope, but one thing that you know I don't think we talk a lot about, certainly on the Hill or certainly with legislators, is the GDPR's notion of legitimate interest. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you have any take on that. I also realize legitimate interest is almost it's uniquely European because it's balancing fundamental rights, but... You know... I have I, I have used the word in meetings with staffers because they don't know what it is, and so oh, have, it's like a new buzzword. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's it, well I, because a lot of these bills again are sort of designed around notice and consent, um, and and just really you know deciding whether you want to have an opt in or an opt out for a particular type of data. 
Um, that's like what it all boils down to. And that's not really innovating in, in sort of the privacy control space. Um, and so, you know, in terms of legitimate interest, we, there, there is still, a, uh, I think, a lot of confusion around it. I'm not sure I totally understand it myself. I, I, I very much doubt that all of my companies do as well. Um, legitimate interest is essentially a sort of a balancing between um, whether the company's interest in processing that data um, either for you know service necessity or something like that it outweighs the uh, fundamental right protection to the user. Um, and so it's just sort of like a cost benefit analysis. Um, but there isn't really like a like a set of examples where like, well, this is a legitimate interest and that's not a legitimate. Well, there there's like one really facile example that I've seen a lot, which is the sort of pizza delivery person. You you have a legitimate interest in collecting and processing address data to deliver your pizza service. Um, and so you wouldn't have to go to consent for that um, because it's sort of part and parcel with your delivery, what you're doing. But there's a lot of our companies are, are defaulting still to consent because it's unclear um, how, you know, direct marketing, you can, there, there is an explicit uh, allowance for using legitimate interest to allow for that in GDPR. Um, if, so long as you can make the balancing arguments again. Um, but for third-party marketing and in the traditional and, and you know the modern cross cross device tracking ad space, um, it's much more difficult, and so it's a whole lot easier to just sort of default to consent. And so uh, this is not a failure of imagination on the GDPR's part because consent is it has is, is just sort of how everybody you know has operated in the space. I mean, it was actually like they were imaginative to think of this sort of legitimate interest mechanism. I, it's just like because there's an opportunity to to stick to what you know. Um, for the time being, everyone is, is doing that. Uh, and, and you know, maybe if they were really daring, they would have not involved consent at all. They would have just been like, you know what, you can only uh, use legitimate interest, uh, figure it out uh, for, you know, X, X types of services. And they would have been more detailed about which ones those were. Um, but they haven't been yet. So uh, companies are still sort of defaulting to the uh, seven digit number they're used to or whatever. Hey, so what is your favorite article in the GDPR? Um, article three, extraterritoriality. Ooh. Um, because it, it's sort of... It's, Everyone it's grab the one your pocket makes, GDPR books. <laughs> um, it's the one that makes the GDPR like the sort of behemoth that it is. It makes, you know, you, you don't just have to, you know, appreciate the GDPR's requirements for European data in the EU anymore. Or like, it, it's extraterritorial. You have to operate internationally. And a really interesting question that this raises is, well, if we're treating European data subject information the same way anywhere, um, why do we need Privacy Shield or uh, BCR or binding corporate rules or standard contractual clauses or any of these mechanisms that are sort of adequacy based, which are also included um, within the context of GDPR hmm. or within the terms of GDPR? Um, like, why do they exist? Like the entire point of them is to ensure that uh, there's essential equivalent protection, essentially equivalent protection or adequate protection for European uh, uh, personal information around the world in countries where it might be seen as, or where the laws might be seen as, as lacking. Um, looking at you, the United States. Um, but they have to do that now in Article 3. So what's the point of signing up for Privacy Shield? Or, and, and so this is a question that. Uh, I know a lot of people are probably asking the DPAs, and there is going to be 
in June, I think, uh, an additional guidance from the DPAs about what constitutes a data transfer and for what purposes you need to have these. Uh, hopefully, they will say what purposes you need to have these adequacy uh, mechanisms as opposed to just treating European data as you would in Europe elsewhere. Um, sounds like exciting summer reading. It is. <laughs> it's going to be really fun. Article 3 is what makes GDPR GDPR. I mean, I guess there's, I don't remember what the article is for the, and I, I guess, Pinal, you did ask about this, like what happens if you're bad? Yeah. Um, and, and I don't remember what the article is for the, the, the fines, but like, you know, it's either 10 million euros or, at the, at the, there are thresholds obviously for different types of violations, um, but at the high end, and, and repeated violations obviously, mm-hmm. uh, it, could, it could go, it's whichever the greater is of 10 million euros and 4% of your company's global turnover. Not even like wow. your turnover in Europe. Like, we're GDPR, wow. we're global, so Article 3 makes us you know, reach everywhere, so we're going to make sure that we can reach into your coffers everywhere. That's, that's, that's a big number. Uh, and I mean, it, I understand why you know, it makes sense to have a stick in this instance. Um, I, I, I just hope that it's the DPAs, you know, apply it with discretion, sort of, you know, if people are, are you know, they have good privacy and, and data protection programs in place, but they're slip up or something like that, or, you know, and they come in and they have this conversation with the DPAs and they're like, oh, well, you know, we understand it. Uh, thank you for flagging that. Or, you know, we're going to rectify it. They won't go straight to the, to the, uh, like the SMU death penalty fine or something like that, you know. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. I know that Joe and I are going to be in RightsCon next week. So actually, listeners, I think that by the time you're hearing this, it will have been last week. Uh, Bijan, are you going to be up in Toronto with RightsCon as well? I will. I will be at my first RightsCon. I'm going, I'm, I'm like many people, overwhelmed by the sort of like breadth and depth. I'm going as like a privacy lawyer. And <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's I, I keep forgetting that privacy is just like one of mm-hmm. like, the things that people consider rights like, like <laughs> <laughs> there are other fundamental rights out there exactly. well i mean I, I didn't i can't even commit to saying that privacy is a fundamental right because it's you know that's in europe that's right uh that is not how it yeah works. we didn't we didn't get into that topic yeah i, I think using that scheduling uh, well, app i got to uh about twelve thirty p.m on the first day and i only had about 13 overlapping events and panels that i need to go to so yeah, it should be fun. We should, by the way, divide and conquer and get someone cliff notes from each other. No, I think I think that's definitely the right approach. Um, and you know, the side conversations at, at these events are always much more fun than the the ones that you're having. And plus, they tend to tend to have free booze associated with them. So I was going um, to say beverages. beverages. Beverages are usually involved outside yeah. of the uh, conference rooms. Uh, um, can our listeners follow you on Twitter or any other social media? Anything you'd like to plug? Uh, things that are going oh, on sure. in your life. Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Bijan M, so that's at B-I-J-A-N-M, um, and uh, you should also read uh, CCIA's Project Disco blog, which is where we talk about, uh, we just relaunched the website, um, it's where we talk about uh, sort of interesting issues in disruptive competition and in, in, in uh, tech policy generally that sort of uh, impact um, smaller, uh, comp- smaller companies and startups and sort of uh, affect how they can emerge in, uh, and I was going to say, you also mentioned that you get a lot of your, uh, information from Twitter. So what are some of the handles that we can follow, uh, to uh, stay up to date? You know, for, for really interesting thinking about, 
you know, the internet ecosystem and whether you know, its benefits or, or harms users. Kevin Bankston is always a really good thinker about these issues. Um, He's going to be at RightsCon talking about speculative fiction while we're exactly. talking about yeah. technical, boring what, things. What, once, once you're, you know, Kevin, and you've already done the, you know, privacy rights advocate side of things, and you've done the surveillance advocate side of things, is that you know, the you can just making sort of tech policy with science fiction? Is, is, was that the panel? Because I saw that I one. That looks incredible. It, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can talk about whatever, and you can, ha you know, have panels where the producer of sneakers comes and like, you know, riffs for like two, an hour and a half, and you know, and everyone will watch it. Um, unlike uh, panels about GDPR, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I, I expect uh, packed rooms. Like exactly. <laughs> Amy Stepanovich from Access Now, uh, one of the hosts of RightsCon. Um, is again another sort of she she uh, is again sort of a user rights activist, but also sort of thinks about how the user rights and privacy uh, policy ecosystem is populated. Like, who are the people doing these things? Are is there diversity? Is that does that reflect the people who are you know who user who activists are supposed to be representing? Um, and mm -hmm. so she's really thoughtful about those issues. Um, and then, uh, if you're interested in talking in, in following sort of the surveillance conversation, um, but want a, a sort of a different angle on it. And someone who's really thoughtful about um, issues that pertain to uh, Russia, um, Susan Hennessy from uh, uh, who's at Lawfare and is a former NSA uh, attorney is is really smart and um, I am always at odds with her, but like <laughs> she makes me think about why I think of the thing, think the things that I do about surveillance and about um, the intelligence community's role in. Um, our society. So, mm. awesome. those are my three plugs. That's helpful. All right, Bajan, thanks so All much right. for joining us. All right, thanks for having me. Thanks. thanks. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind and keep your ears peeled for new episodes twice a month on alternating Mondays. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks. <laughs>